0: This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VINsmart. Learn more about how we can help you with fleet recall management and maintenance updates, as well as capture vehicle history and VIN data. Give VINsmart a call at 1-888-950-9550, or visit us on the web at vinsmart.com slash businesses. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Well, welcome back to the AmvaCast, everyone. This week, we are going to talk to one of Amva's key partners in the realm of highway safety and an organization that is very much a household name, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Well known for their crash tests and crash ratings, but there's so much more that they do and they work on. And we're going to learn a little bit about them today as we talk to the president of IIHS, David Harkey. David, welcome to your first appearance on the AmvaCast.
1: Thank you, Ian. It's great to be here.
0: You know, I mentioned in the outset that IIHS is well known for crash tests, which I'm sure we'll get to and we'll talk about. But the history goes back, I think, longer than a lot of folks realize to the late 50s when the insurance industry kind of came together to create the Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about that history to kick us off?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting time in transportation when you look back at it. You know, we had come out of World War II, the economy was booming There was a lot of focus on building roadways. The interstate system was launched during that time. We were in the era of muscle cars, a lot of horsepower in vehicles at that time. And there wasn't much attention being paid to safety. And I think the insurance industry give them credit for kind of leading the way and thinking about what can we do in terms of safety. And so a number of the auto insurers got together and decided, let's establish this independent research organization known as the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety and let them kind of be a guiding light, so to speak, in terms of focusing on the issues of road safety.
0: And what were their motivations back then? I think there's a, you know, maybe a unfair presumption that insurance industry would be motivated to do something like that when they look at a, a P&L and say, well, what can we do to reduce our risk for paying out insurance claims? Was it as straightforward as that? Or were there leaders in the insurance industry at the time that said, you know, we we have a responsibility to help save lives or a little bit of both, perhaps?
1: <laughs> yeah, and maybe I think that's fair. I, I think it, it probably was a little bit of both. I think there is certainly there were advantages To the insurance companies to try and reduce any kind of harm on the roadways. But there was also very much a a philanthropic approach to this, and they realized that society at large was not paying attention to road safety. And so I, I think that drove them then, and it continues to drive their support of our center today. You have to remember, you know, today when we look at our member companies, it encompasses More than 90% of the auto insurance industry. And so that is a pretty good record when you start thinking about the number of companies that are supporting us. They really believe in what we do and in our mission.
0: And today, is the membership strictly insurance companies? Has it stayed true to that original context?
1: It has. And one of the things that we've done over the past five, six years is we have expanded from just U.S companies to now including some Canadian companies as well. But it is still strictly those who are writing auto insurance policies. Now,
0: the, the research that you do, which is well-known, well-recognized, and quite a volume. I feel like every week there's a new study coming out of IHS, and it really does cover the gamut of human behavior, the vehicle, the uh, physical environment of the infrastructure. But when you look across all of those research sections that you manage, is there a core philosophy or core strategic approach that the IIHS leadership brings to, no matter which realm of research we're doing in highway safety, this is kind of the overarching philosophy?
1: Yeah, I I think the overarching philosophy is there's no one aspect of road safety. If you think about vehicles, you think about infrastructure, you think about behaviors, There's no one aspect of our road safety system that's going to get us to a point of having no fatalities or no serious injuries. And so we really have to think about it in a holistic manner. You know, it's a system. And one of the things that I've tried to get the organization to focus on in the last couple of years is taking a safe systems approach to our research and really trying to think about how do we put all these pieces together together? and even create redundancies across the various components to make sure that we're addressing road safety fatalities and trying to drive those numbers down dramatically.
0: David, that phrase, safe systems, is one we're hearing more and more in the highway safety community over the last couple of years. It's one that uh, some of the listeners to this podcast may be less familiar with. You mind if we take a little detour and you give us a little more of a definition of that safe systems philosophy?
1: Sure. This is an approach to road safety that was actually born in other parts of the world. And so there are you know, countries out there like Sweden, like Australia, for example, that have taken this approach to really thinking holistically about road safety, putting the human being at the center of what our focus is and trying to make sure that as human beings, when we do make mistakes on the roadway and we will make mistakes on the roadway, that we do not die or get a serious injury as a consequence of that. And so what do we do in terms of addressing our infrastructure, addressing our behaviors, addressing emergency response, and addressing one of the real key components, which is speed? How do we put all of those things together collectively and, as I said earlier, present redundancies in the system that if you make a mistake, for example, running off the road, If you've got rumble strips on the side of the road to alert you, if you've got vehicles now that come with lane departure warnings to alert you, you know, these are the kinds of redundancies that we can put in the system now to help prevent you from running off that roadway and perhaps striking a a tree or a utility pole and getting a serious injury. So that's really the idea behind safe systems is put the human being at the center and then build these redundancies in all of these components to keep everyone safe.
0: And have you seen the introduction of that concept be able to change the research you're doing? Are you seeing that shift happening? And what does that look like in these studies and research that maybe didn't exist there previous to having that mentality front and center?
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the big challenges has been how do we get that system adopted here in the United States? You know, in other countries where they've done this, they've driven their fatality numbers down by as much as 50%. And so that's the reason we wanted to see if we could get that initiated and implemented here in the United States. And so there have been a lot of groups over the last few years that have been working to try and make that happen and make departments of transportation at the state level, at the local level, aware of what this approach is and how do you go about implementing it. So we're in the very early stages are really trying to get this implemented in the US. And I think the verdict is still out on what that's going to mean in terms of making a difference. But I think we're going to get there. I think everybody is now becoming aware of what this is and understands that there can be a tremendous impact on road safety.
0: So one of the things that we know that is most identifiable with your group are the crash tests. So let's talk a little bit about that. When did those start? Was that part of that initial creation of the Institute in the late 50s? Or did that come about later in development?
1: That came about later, much later, actually. And it really wasn't until the early 90s and when uh, we built the research center. So we have our headquarters is in Arlington, Virginia. And then we have a research center that is down near Charlottesville, Virginia. And that was built in the early 90s. And that's when we built our crash testing facility at that time. And we launched our first crash test in the early 90s. And one of the reasons that the Insurance Institute decided to do that was the test that was being done by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration at that time, we did not feel like it was rigorous enough. And so we wanted to develop a crash test program that had a little more rigor to it, that also reflected more of the types of collisions that we were seeing in the real world. And so we launched what was called our moderate overlap test where only part of the vehicle struck a barrier. So you had more energy kind of focused on the driver than what you were getting in the NHTSA test. And the result of that was very dramatic. It started to really shift the way automakers started to think about the design of their vehicles.
0: And so how has that, Informed both NHTSA as they evolved since the early 90s, as well as the manufacturers, are you able to draw that direct line between those crash test results and either NHTSA adjusting the way they do things and then the direct line to manufacturers saying, okay, we're going to use this in our design of new vehicles?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Is one of the things that is really clear. The U.S. is fortunate that we have both the Insurance Institute and we have NHTSA. We have two new car assessment programs, two groups that are really testing new vehicles for safety. And I think we're constantly learning from one another. And we're also learning from about 10 other groups around the globe that do this kind of testing as well. And so we all learn from one another as as we've gone through the years and in some cases introduce new tests. And one of the real clear benefits to all of this testing is it has changed the way automakers design their vehicles and think about how do you protect occupants in different kinds of crashes. And it's really, really important that we circle back every now and then and look at what's happening in real world crashes and compare that to our test and to see, you know, a good rated vehicle, how well is it performing in real world crashes versus a poor rated vehicle? And just give you one example, our side impact test, where we run a vehicle into the side of a new vehicle, a good rated vehicle, you are 70% less likely to have a fatality in a good rated vehicle versus a poor rated vehicle in that test. That's the kind of real world results we want to see from the testing that we do.
0: And so how often are you doing crash tests, pandemic restrictions aside? you know, when things were in in normal operations, how often are you running those crash tests at the facility?
1: So we're running roughly two tests a week at the facility. And so we're running somewhere between, you know, 90 and a hundred tests in a given year. We now cover more than 200 different, 230, I think, or something like that, different models that we have ratings for in our system. And so we run a lot of tests during the course of a year and Lately, a lot of tests, obviously, on electric vehicles, which is becoming the new vehicle of choice for manufacturers these days.
0: And so let's talk about that. Are you seeing different results in crash trends based on it being an electric vehicle?
1: You know, it's it's one of the good news stories that we have seen lately, which is all of the electric vehicles that we're testing are performing just as well as their conventional engine counterparts. And so that's been something that we've been very happy to talk about when it comes to electric vehicles and where we see the auto industry moving to. These vehicles are much heavier than a conventional engine vehicle because of the battery, but we're seeing very positive results when it comes to occupant protection with these electric vehicles. Because I suppose the
0: non engineer, non scientist of myself would come at it thinking that that shift in weight of battery versus engine would somehow shift how that energy is dispersed, particularly in a maybe a head on collision, more so than that side collision. You know, whether it's an engine vehicle hitting a battery vehicle or two battery vehicles hitting each other, how that energy is then dispensed to the two vehicles might be different. But I think what I hear you're saying is that you're seeing it more consistent than different.
1: Yeah, and and that's exactly the question. You're asking the right question, and it's the question our engineers ask as well, because you've got in some cases you've got a lower center of gravity. Because of that weight, the weight is distributed differently than it is in a conventional vehicle. You don't have that large engine in front of the vehicle. And so how does that affect the dynamics the, that go on in a crash? And so it's one of the reasons you know we started looking at electric vehicles years ago when Tesla first came on the market. But we've really seen no disbenefits of having an electric vehicle. It really is just as safe when it comes to protecting the occupant. And of course, the other thing you worry about, and we continue to be concerned about, is is there any kind of concern associated with damaging the battery compartment itself in the course of a crash? Just like you don't want to see a fuel tank accident occur in the course of a crash. You don't want to see the battery compartment compromised. And so we've not seen that. And so that's, again, that's the good news story of these electric vehicles.
0: Now, the other emerging area of vehicles where I know you've also expanded your testing facility is around the automated technology in vehicles. I think that's a newer expansion of the facility in Rutgersville, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. One of the things that we've moved from is crashworthiness and occupant protection, and so we have six different tests now that we run, looking at that particular aspect of vehicle safety. To including now collision avoidance technology, and so we run a lot of tests. So you know, there's the question of if you get in a crash, how well protected are you? And that's really where the top safety pick started, right? Our top awards for our best performing vehicles. And then we've expanded to that as driving assistance technologies have come on the market to start to test for how vehicles are performing in terms of keeping you out of a crash altogether. And of course, you know, the things that people may be familiar with are like automatic emergency braking, lane departure warning. These are the kinds of systems that we now run tests on. And then another big piece of collision avoidance, and we're the only ones in the world that are running these kinds of tests, are headlights. Because it's really, really important that vehicles have good headlights. I'm not sure that most of us think about headlights when it comes to safety, but when you think about almost half of the fatalities that we experience are at night or at dawn or at dusk conditions. And more than that, when you look at vulnerable road users like pedestrians they occur at night. And so having good headlights is a really important safety component. And so we've been running headlight tests for several years now. And the vehicle industry is starting to understand how to make headlights perform better. And uh, and so we're seeing progress in that area as well.
0: And what's the technology that's shifting there to improve headlights? Is it the bulb, is it the strength? What's happening in that kind of mini sector of car manufacturing?
1: Yeah, certainly there's been advances as we've moved from you know the old halogen bulbs to nowadays when we have more of these systems that have LED lights integrated into the vehicles. But we're really technology agnostic. When it comes to looking at this, we're really just interested in performance. And the biggest key for the automakers has been to get the aim of the headlights, positioning of the headlights placed on the vehicle in such a way that you can create as much downstream light as possible for the driver while eliminating glare for the oncoming driver. That's an important piece when we do the ratings, is we want to make sure. That you're not just putting out so much light that, yeah, you're you you you're fine for the driver. You can
0: see everything, right. <laughs> but, yeah, you can
1: see everything and as far down the road as you can. And they can do that. But you have to be aware that you're also going to create glare for the oncoming driver. And so –
0: Or the driver in front of you with the rearview mirror. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the really cool things that we hope makes its way to the U.S. at some point in the near future, there are technologies available. There are these active, what are called active matrix beam systems that are available in Europe now and are on some of the vehicles there where they can literally turn the LED lights on and off depending on whether there are vehicles present in front of you, coming toward you, They can light up more of the roadside. The technology is incredible.
0: With automation, it detects what's around them and it adjusts dynamically without the driver intervening.
1: Absolutely. And that's the kind of technology that we think could have a really positive benefit on safety. But it's not allowed here in the US currently because it doesn't meet the old federal motor vehicle safety standards that were developed back in the nineteen sixties.
0: Interesting. Though I think you You've answered the question right there with (laughs) reminding us how long ago those standards were created. Hopefully, maybe we've got some regulator listeners tuning into where they may need some updates. So the other question I want to ask you, and maybe this is a little bit sensitive, but there's been some coverage lately and news stories around crash and crash test dummies and the sensitivity that maybe one size doesn't fit all the way for decades we've kind of approached evaluating the impacts on crash dummies. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. No, I, I think it's an important topic that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I would say that the industry as a whole, when testing started, you know, the the idea was to get a particular dummy that was representative of perhaps the population as a whole. And the original crash test dummies was very much modeled after some things that were being done in the the military at that time. And so, you know, it was your typical male, what they considered male military person. And that's been used in a lot of crash tests over the years. Now, there have been other dummies developed. There have been, you know, child dummies developed. We also have female dummies that have been developed over the years. And it's just a question of which dummies do you use in your testing. Crash testing is expensive and you can't run a test with every single dummy that you might want to try out. But we can run enough tests with different dummies to see if there are real differences in the performance of a vehicle when it comes to occupant protection. And I know this issue has been highlighted recently about, you know, are we doing enough when it comes to our crash testing to make sure that we're protecting all occupants, in particular female occupants? When we're using mail dummies in our testing. And we've done some supplemental research since this issue was raised to try and look at this issue and find out what's really going on there. And I think the two things that came out of our research is one is that even using the mail dummy, that all drivers have benefited from the tests that have been run with that mail dummy. You know, we're seeing benefits when you look at real world crashes. We've seen benefits in terms of the structural improvement of vehicles and the safety devices that have been put in these vehicles for both male and female across the board. And so there doesn't seem to be this lack of safety improvements for females that was perhaps being talked about. But that doesn't mean we don't need to do more in this arena. Our research also uncovered some issues with regards to certain types of injuries that seem to be occurring more with females in real-world crashes. And so we are starting to look at that and to see how we might be able to change our approach in terms of the types of dummies we use and the various crashes that we test to see if we might be able to do more in that arena in the future.
0: So outside of the crash tests, because the crash tests are very tactical. You see them, you touch them, you measure, you do results. When you look at your research work in the behavioral area and the infrastructure area, is it as equally tactile and creating real world environment, or is that more academic study?
1: No, I think it's probably a blend, I would say, you know, as kind of a, a blanket statement at the top. But our ultimate goal is to do research that results in changes in implementation. And so, whether that is the change in maybe a type of infrastructure that we're putting in place or changes in policy that are occurring when it comes to road safety. And so, a couple of examples there, you know, we've done research on safety benefits of roundabouts at place of traditional intersections. And so, we know that that roundabouts can result in a significant reduction in the number of fatalities and injuries because you take out that T bone crash that you often see at intersections and, so you, and you slow the speeds down at the intersection itself. And we have subsequently seen research that we've done, research that others have done on that particular topic, a substantial increase in the number of roundabouts that are being implemented across this country. And so that's the kind of, again, the positive implementation that we want to see that is a product of the research that we do. When you look on the behavior side, there's a lot of things that we've done over the years that support policy changes. And so, you know, we've done a lot of work looking at graduated driver licensing and what changes are needed to improve those programs in various states. And, you know, now every state has a graduated driver's licensing programs and the restrictions and the requirements have gotten better in many of those states over the years as a result of research that we've done the same can be said i think when it comes to things like impaired driving and looking at let's say the adjudication side of things and the application of ignition interlocks right and so we've been able to show that if you just use ignition interlocks for our repeat offenders you know you get a 3% reduction in impaired driving fatalities if you use it for not just repeat offenders and not just high BAC offenders, but for all offenders, you can get a 16% reduction. And so we've seen some states then take advantage of that research and modify their ignition interlock laws. So that's the kind of implementation that we want to see from the research that we're conducting.
0: Yeah, and I, I think what I was trying to ask everybody in ask NAR when you're doing that type of research. That's where you're looking at data and crash records and information you're receiving from sources to create those studies, as opposed to, say, in your roundabout example, or maybe you are, are you going out to a roundabout and actually putting vehicles through the roundabout the way you're doing a crash test, as opposed to saying, you know, we're looking at models of what vehicles do in in roundabouts. Just trying to get an understanding for our listeners of exactly how your organization goes about that research.
1: Yeah, a lot of our behavior research is very much based on data that we acquire from other sources. And, you know, a lot of that is police reported crash data. But one of the advantages that we have at the Insurance Institute, we have a a sister organization that's up under our primary organization called the Highway Loss Data Institute. That institute was actually formed in 1972. It wasn't formed when the original institute was. It was in 1972. That's the organization that acquires collision claims data from our member companies. And that's a really important data set. You know, before I came to the institute, I always used to kid about being jealous of the insurance institute because they seemed to be a little ahead of the curve in terms of identifying some of the problems that were occurring in road safety. Well part of that is is because insurance claims data come in much quicker than police reported data crash data, of course, crash data, right yeah and so you have and so that and that collision claims data can give you some insights into road safety problems that may be on the horizon, and so we've been able to look at things like driver assistance systems much earlier in looking at our collision claims data then we were able to look at those systems when it came to police reported data.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. I would imagine it's also hopeful in that even as many insurance companies as there are collecting claims, it's still less entities than all of the enforcement agencies that are filing all those crash reports. So it allows for a quicker coalescing of that data and moving it through the process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the most recent example of that would be our... Insights into what's happening with regards to the legalization of the recreational use of marijuana, and so we've been able to look at our collision claims data and figure out what was going on with that much earlier than waiting on police reported crash data and the findings actually you know once we were able to kind of look at both, they were in the same ballpark you know we were seeing about a four to six percent uptick in those states where recreational use was legalized versus those states where it had not been legalized. And so we saw that early on in our collision claims data. And then we were later, a few years later, able to find that same finding in the police reported crashes.
0: And are you now seeing that prove out more widely as more jurisdictions are adopting legalization?
1: We did. We we started with the three states back in 2017 or so. We were looking at this. And at that time, it was Colorado and then Washington and then Oregon. And now we've added Nevada and we've added California. And we're seeing those same numbers. It looks like that's about the impact that we're seeing, but that's still significant. And we've recently just released the latest results. And one of the things that I always try to tell people is impairment is impairment, regardless of the substance. And so I think the public still doesn't quite grasp that there's a difference. you know they think that there's a big difference between alcohol impairment and, and impairment associated with marijuana. But we're seeing this uptick in fatalities. We're seeing this uptick in marijuana use from self-reported surveys and testing that we've done. and you know you talk about four percent, five percent increases. that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you talk about four percent, five percent increases, and we're already experiencing 10,000 fatalities in this country annually. Those are big numbers and those are a lot of families that are going to be affected by a tragedy. Right.
0: And in the last year and a half, you know, we've had some episodes of this podcast talking about the unique challenges of highway safety related to the pandemic with speed being way up and high speed crashes are up from the trend as well as impairment are the insurance claims tracking that in a more data-driven way is what we're hearing kind of on the street?
1: Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of time before we know for sure, because there's still a lag from the time, you know, obviously the claims get filed until we see it show up in, in our data. And so we haven't been able to look at that specifically, but I suspect we will see that when we start digging into that. You know, it is, it's really interesting. There's no doubt that the pandemic has exacerbated some of those problems that you just mentioned, you know, speeding and impairment, and even people not wearing their seat belts who are involved in crashes. That's another thing that's been highlighted during the pandemic. These are all problems that existed before the pandemic, and they're going to exist after the pandemic is over. And there are three of the biggest challenges in road safety. That if we could address those three problems, we could make a huge difference in the number of lives that we can save roadways.
0: Yeah, it's funny we talk about it related to the pandemic, but you know it's really going back to the basics, right? It's always been you know speed, occupant protection, impairment. You know, not that there aren't other reasons for fatal crashes, but it's almost as if there's those three, and then everything else follows.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's where it's where our focus will continue to be. We're trying to do a lot with speed now. One of the things that we did recently is we partnered with AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety in trying to highlight this issue of speed and how small changes in speed can make a big difference in terms of your survivability in a crash. And so we ran. Same vehicle at different speeds through one of our tests and showing, you know, how that survivable space in a vehicle and your likelihood of injury changes as you move from, you know, 40 miles per hour to 50 miles per hour to 56 miles per hour. And I think you know the whole point of that was to have a message and have video that you could show to policymakers when they start thinking about things like increasing speed limits across a system of roadways. And I think it's it can be a powerful message. And having that video can be much more powerful than just having words on paper.
0: Absolutely. So, David, we're starting to run a little short on time, but I have to use my Host's personal privilege to ask you about one of the studies you do every year. That I have a uh, soon to be driver in our household who still soon get, you know, go through the permitting and the graduated driver's license and the whole deal. And one of the studies that I've always found particularly fascinating from you is the study around safe vehicles for new drivers. That when you have a new driver, particularly a lot of households may be looking for used vehicles for their new driver some really good guidance on how to have a safe vehicle that's specific for a new driver who maybe doesn't have the experience of a more experienced driver. Can I put you on the spot for my own personal education to maybe talk a little bit about that particular study that comes out every year?
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the more important products that we do release every year because I think parents are always looking to us for guidance about what to do with their teen drivers, whether it's rule setting in the house uh, when it comes to to driving or purchasing a new vehicle. And I think we've all fallen into that trap. I know I have personally of, you know, handing down the older vehicle to your teen. And, you know, we try to encourage parents to flip that upside down and think about put your teen in the safest vehicle that you have in your fleet of home vehicles, so to speak. And so we've put this list out every year, new vehicles and used vehicles, and we try to do a couple things. And in the last couple years, we've worked with consumer reports in putting this list out. So we not only think about safety, but we think about reliability, which is what they're focused on. And that's important as well because you don't want your team breaking down in a vehicle. And so, you know, these lists include an array of vehicle types from small cars to SUVs, and it ranges in price, you know, from some of the used vehicles that may be as low as $7,000 to new vehicles at about $40,000. We try to keep them in an affordable range, but there are a lot of good choices in there. And the real keys are that all of these vehicles perform really well in our crash tests, and so they will protect the occupant. So if your teen makes a mistake, they are in a safe vehicle that will hopefully protect them. But more recently, some of these vehicles now, and particularly for the new vehicles that we're recommending, we wanna make sure that they have certain technologies in there, right? And so whether it's automatic emergency braking or perhaps some of the, the lane departure systems.
0: Lane correction, yep. Yeah.
1: yeah, we wanna make sure that you have the latest technology. You know, our advice when it comes to informing parents on this is buy as much safety as you can afford for your teen driver. And I think that's a good approach that we should all use when it comes to trying to protect our teens.
0: Yeah. And it is, it's it's a hard conversation to have or consider to say, well, we're going to invest in a new vehicle and I'll keep driving the old Mm -hmm. (laughs) 10, 12, 15 year old such and such, but I'll, I'll get you the new car. But it, it's kind of, uh, you remember back to when you first had that child in the car and uh, you hopefully did not scrimp on the child seat in the back seat to keep them safe. Why would this be any different?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's really what we want parents to think about is is right, doing all you can to protect that team. Because you got to remember, they're learning. They're a novice driver. They're learning. They're more likely to make a mistake than you are when they're on the road. And so you want them in the safest vehicle possible.
0: Well, thankfully, my son does not listen to my own podcast. So he doesn't know that you know, you're know you trying to get him a new car. <laughs> so we'll, see. we'll see what happens in the, in the next year. David, I really appreciate you taking some time today to chat with us, learning a little bit more about IHS. I know we've only scratched the surface on some of the exciting research that you're doing and all the Institute's contributions to highway safety. And then perhaps we can have you back in a future episode to dig a little deeper into some of the other emerging areas of safety and the great work you're doing. But quickly, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. You've been with the Institute now for a handful of years, or it seems like time just flies by.
1: Yeah, I've been there about three and a half years now. A year and a half of that, of course, during the pandemic. And so time has flown by. And prior to that, I was at the University of North Carolina's Highway Safety Research Center. And so I spent a large part of my career there last 11 or so as director of that center. So I've been involved in highway safety for, for a very long time. And uh, we still got a lot of work to do. And I look forward to continuing my my work at the Insurance Institute. We've got a lot of good things ahead of us here in the next few years.
0: Well, David, thanks again. Really appreciate it. We'll have you back again in the future. For all of our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in again this week. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Hadwin and Claire Jeffrey. And we'll see you all the next time on the Amvacast. Until then, stay well, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Amvacast. Hosted by Ian Grossman. Produced by Claire Jeffrey. Music by Gibson Arthur. This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz. Powered by Vinsmart.